Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to another episode of Battle Walks. I'm Matt McLaughlin and thank you to everyone who's been sending us feedback now that we're back with Season 4. It's great to be back. We've got some fantastic episodes coming up. We've got some fantastic bonus episodes coming up for subscribers. So thanks to everyone. Quite a few people have uh, have subscribed to get those bonus episodes. It's very exciting. There's just a whole community of, of people interested in walking these battlefields in a virtual sense. And my co-host, I know, has been receiving good feedback about it as well. Let's welcome him all the way from France. It's Pete Smith. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Nice to be back. That was a bit of a game show introduction, wasn't it, Pete? It Come was, on I down. I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were telling me, mate, uh, last time we caught up, you were telling me that a couple of people had actually come up to you saying, excuse me, are you Pete Smith? They yes. recognised your voice from the podcast. I find it very disconcerting, to be truthful, when you're in the middle of uh, lecturing to your clients and somebody just, when you finish, walks across and says, that was really good. You're Pete Smith, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. How do you know? I, what, I listen to your podcasts. And uh, and the conversation goes on from there, which is, uh, yeah, it's very rewarding, but I say I just find it slightly disconcerting at the moment. It's reflective of the uh, of the intelligence of our listeners that they can spot someone... <laughs> In the great outdoors, in a crowd, simply by their voice and recognise them as uh, as someone they follow on a podcast. So, Noth- well done. Well done to those people. <laughs> Nothing to do with my Yorkshire accent whatsoever. <laughs> hey up, hey up. <laughs> what are we doing today, Pete? I can't remember. We should just have a chat for uh, for half an hour or so. No, no, no. We have we yeah. have a battlefield to walk and it's a, it's a beauty today. We are returning to World War Two. We normally say we're walking the great battlefields of Europe, but... But effectively, we're walking the great battlefields of the world because we're heading back to the Pacific, heading back to Guadalcanal. Many months ago, might have been a year or more ago, we did uh, the Thin Red Line on Guadalcanal. And I think that was in our top three most downloaded podcasts. It was incredibly popular with people. 
I suppose because it's just so unusual, it's so out of the way. There's not a lot of people who are going over and walking the battlefields of the Solomon Islands, although I would absolutely say if you have the chance, do it for real because it's incredible. There was a, a good experience, the Guadalcanal one we did last time, wasn't it, Pete? It was a good experience for me because I've I've uh, I've not been, and uh, I suspect I never will. Um, who knows? You never know. But uh, yeah, so very interesting. I found it as as interesting as most of the listeners. I suspect. Well, I'm sure it's going to be another one again today, mate, because we're continuing on in that theme, doing another sector of Guadalcanal, which I really which I really enjoy, and where I've led many people around on tours. Um, effectively, we're doing the Guadalcanal campaign in reverse because these are the late actions, the the late army actions. And as I said in our previous Guadalcanal podcast, it's because the marine actions are obscured by what is today the town of Honiara because they all took place along the coast. Um, and it's the army actions up in the hills where there's still a lot of artifacts and a lot of sights to see from the fighting. So we're focusing, we'll do other Guadalcanal podcast i'm sure but initially we're focusing on these later actions right at the end of the campaign simply because there's just so much great stuff to see and that's really a key to walking a battlefield isn't it mate that you yeah you need to find those tangibles indeed and uh, and there's so much that uh, when i'm reading your notes that you kindly sent me there's so much here that you can transfer from the western front from normandy from other battlefields um it's uh but it, yeah there's nothing better than actually being on the ground and it's one of the things that i'm struggling with is because i haven't been on the ground here i know that when eventually hopefully i, I will eventually get here i'm going to find it very di- uh, very different from what your imagination and, and how you take the the idea of maps uh, it's, it's very different and photographs very different when you're actually there so hopefully one day I, I will be there and i can follow follow this as we're going to uh, as we're going to discuss what we're going to discuss in, in the next uh, half an hour you um touched on a good point there pete the commonality of experience for the men across wars and it's something that strikes me all the time you'd think that someone that fought at gallipoli would not have a huge amount in common with someone who fought in normandy or fought in vietnam or fought in guadalcanal um, but it just strikes me time and time again that there's a commonality of experience which comes from strapping on the boots and grabbing a rifle, grabbing your iron rations and heading out into into the combat zone. It's uh, it's it's a, obviously a life changing event, um, and surprisingly similar for men through through all uh, all phases of war. I, th- I even when I'm actually doing my tours, I very often talk about Agincourt and Cressy because, uh, as people who listen to the podcasts will know, that uh, we guide there as well and we take tours to, to those locations. And, and very, very often, the longbowmen I discuss uh, the same way as I would a machine gun. So it's uh, yeah. So you, uh, and the men themselves, I, I discuss the fact that they were also strapping on their their boots or their variation of boots and and, and lifting their equipment and wondering what they're going to be eating at the end of the day. So nothing changes uh, to a great deal. Well, the men who fought in this area would share that uh, the hardships and the and the fears and the uh, and the horror of what went on because there was some pretty brutal fighting in this region. We're going to do it's the region around Mount Austin uh, in Guadalcanal, and I won't uh, I won't go into the whole history of the Guadalcanal campaign again. Please do go and listen to our previous episode on Guadalcanal, which was the Thin Red Line, because there's a we do a good explanation there of why the Americans ended up fighting in Guadalcanal. But these two battles are very closely linked, Mount Austin and Galloping Horse, where the Thin Red Line was, are very close together. Um, and this is uh, this is a, a, just a fascinating sector of Guadalcanal. And the interesting thing about Mount Austin is one of the things we mentioned in our last episode was how rushed the Guadalcanal 
preparations were. No one expected that the Marines would be fighting and landing in August 1942. So everything was rushed. And including that, they didn't have a very good understanding of the lay of the land. And so an Australian who had lived on the island was briefing the Americans about what they would see. And he drew a bit of a mud map. And one of the things he indicated on the mud map was not far from the airfield the Japanese were currently building was what he called a grassy knoll. And now, Pete, that's always an ominous term for Americans from other chapters of history. Um, But he called it a grassy knoll, which overlooked the airfield. Now, when the Marines landed on Guadalcanal, they discovered that this grassy knoll, in quote marks, was in fact a 1,500-foot-high mountain called Mount Austin. And it wasn't overlooking the airfield. It was eight kilometres from the airfield through the thickest jungle and rivers and snake-infested terrain you would ever find. The Marines that went out and captured the, uh, the, the airfield then moved inland actually had to cross the same river several times because it would bend and twist back on itself. And so they'd have three or four crossings of the same river in the same day just to move forward in a straight line. So some pretty inhis- in- inhospitable territory. But Mount Austin, as it's known, just is... You can see it pretty much from everywhere when you're in, in the Guadalcanal battlefield because it just it's just this huge presence. You spot it when you first land at the airfield um, because the airfield that was fought over during the Guadalcanal campaign is today the International Airport at Honiara. Um and you see it as soon as you get off the plane. You get off the plane and walk across the, the runway and you're you're looking at Mount Austin. So you're looking at the Guadalcanal battlefield. It's Peter, I, I can't describe how intertwined with the modern existence the Second World War is in Guadalcanal because everything that's there is because of the Second World War. Had this, the, this, the Battle of Guadalcanal not occurred, there wouldn't be a town there. There wouldn't be these these famous sites. So have you been to other battlefields, mate, where it's just inescapably intertwined with the history not as not as much because of course in europe the history uh, i mean all cities are intertwined with history that goes back centuries but this isn't that this is this is recent history that it's intertwining with uh, and so no i can't think of one at all because if you go my, my instant kind of uh, comparison i suppose is the gallipoli peninsula you think about the gallipoli peninsula but even there there's 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 thousands of years of history there may not be that many people living there but there's thousands of years of history on the same site and and nothing's really changed the war didn't change uh, the great war didn't change the people that are living on the peninsula and, uh, uh, greatly but this obviously does this this creates uh, um, a, a a town uh, and uh, i suppose an, an industry to a certain extent of people returning and going to the battlefield, so no, I think it's very different. I'm sure there may be other places in the uh, in the Far East that have a have a similar effect, but this one is yeah, is, is uh, unusual. I think almost unique, I'd say. What, what yeah. we're actually discussing, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, what we're talking about is the town of Honiara, that is the capital of the Solomon Islands, was the former U.S. base during the Second World War. So the the town is there because of the war. And the Americans, after the Guadalcanal campaign, built their base on the ground where they'd fought the campaign. So the everything, every mountain that you see, lots of the buildings are all World War II related. It's an, it's an extraordinary place, mm. and we're going to discover that in a virtual sense as we as we travel around it today. So Mount Austin, um, as I said, a looming presence in in uh, looming over the uh, over the troops wherever they were on the battlefield. And was not taken until very late in the campaign. In fact, this was the latest action of the campaign, the last major action of the campaign. It was specifically an area known as the Gifu because the defenders mostly came from Gifu Prefecture in Japan. So the Americans dubbed it it the Gifu 
And this was the last Japanese holdout on the, sl- on the slopes of Mount Austin. So it was a really significant site. Again, an army action, not a marine action. The marines had left by now. So we're talking January, uh, very late January 1942, that this action occurred. And it's even though we're calling it battle walks, it's actually a battle drive, this one, because the distances are too great to walk it. But we're going to drive around and um, see some sites and tell some stories, not just from that late part of the campaign, but from throughout the Guadalcanal campaign. So it's going to be a good one. Pete... Have you got your boots on? Have you filled a backpack with water bottles and sandwiches? Are you ready to hit the road? No, I put some. I put some uh, some fuel in the car, so uh, I'm going to be in the driving. <laughs> I'll do the driving. You can do the walking. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, we're we're going to start in the centre of Honiara in the town of Honiara. We, I'm sure we're staying in a nice, comfy hotel. Uh, we're going to cross the Matanico River, the famous Matanico River that featured in many battles. We're driving east uh, out of Honiara. And we're going to take a right-hand turn and head up into the hills that overlook the town. You don't have to drive very far to get into the hills. They're, they're right behind the, the low ground on the coast. So one of the things I noted as we drive is we can see we can see Mount Austin again looming over us. And Pete, one of the things, just a little, you know, ring the bell, a little Matt and Pete tangent. But it, it just reminded me when I was doing the research for this episode that there's been a couple of famous examples where... Allied troops have been dug in or fighting in a certain area and they've been overlooked by a high feature that they knew was occupied by the enemy. And I'm thinking about things like Archibaba in Gallipoli, the, the hill that overlooked the whole Hellas section in sector in Gallipoli. Uh, I'm thinking about, not far from you, Pete, the Butte de Wallencourt on yep. the Somme. There's some fabulous accounts, some horrifying accounts of what it was like to be in the trenches knowing that the Germans were on top of this this hill looking straight down onto everything that you do and, you know, accounts that loomed over men day and night. This was very much the same. The Americans knew the Japanese were on that hill and were watching them, watching every move they made. Pete, as a military man, how how would that make the, the men feel, knowing that they were under constant observation with everything that they did? Well, the one I always think about is Hill 60. Uh, these, these are well-known locations, but that's, that seems to be the common theme, is these well-known locations are well-known because they were, we're fighting to either push the Germans off a hill or push whoever we're fighting off the hill or, or in fact, retain our uh, presence on the hill. And so we have Hill 60, we have um uh the Messine Ridge I was there th- uh, this morning very briefly on the Messine Ridge we uh, we have um Mont Saint Quentin so all of these the fighting is taking place to get the enemy off the high ground and I think perhaps the one that I talk about the most uh, and the one that would have uh, um, it really did uh, fill soldiers with horror if they knew they were going to the hill 60 sector because that meant that uh, in most cases throughout the war that the Germans were on Hill 60 looking down on you and the, the ground was so shell-torn and horrendous that it meant you were living in very difficult situation with the Germans actually looking down on you. So, yeah, it's so yeah, this is, this is another one of those. This is the, uh, the, the Japanese, in this case, looking down on the Americans and being aware of what's, go- what's going on. And, of course, that gives you, uh, if you have the artillery, that gives you the ability to bring down artillery fire on you. It, it just makes it very difficult of course if you're trying to climb up it the the physical effort of getting up these slopes again so everything is uh, uh in the favor of the defender and hence we get this this going right back into history three to one you know, to a to a, attack a fortified position on top of a hill then you're really going to need three to one to have any hope of success it's not just a tactical issue as well in terms of noting that the fighting will now be harder and that you you know that you're being observed but there's also the mental effect of it as well and mm. 
there are a number of accounts of in all of these examples that we've given of just that feeling of I can't get away from my enemy. They're watching everything I do. And I've actually just through a fluke, I've reached behind me and grabbed the exact book I was looking for <laughs> when I was talking about the Butte de Wallencourt. Um, and this is, I know this is on the Somme in a completely different war, but I think it gives an idea of just the mental strain. So I'm going to read this quote from the Somme in 1916, but I think it sums up the idea of what it meant to be overlooked. Uh, so this is from uh, Charles Carrington, uh, who described it, the, the Butte de Wallencourt in his memoirs. He said, That ghastly hill, never free from the smoke of bursting shells, became fabulous. It shone white in the night and seemed to leer at you like an ogre in a fairy tale. It loomed up unexpectedly, peering into trenches when you thought you were safe. It haunted your dreams. 24 hours in the trenches before the butte finished a man off. And as I said, even though that's a quote from the First World War, I think that's a universal feeling. And, and there are, you know, the, the American veterans I spoke to from Guadalcanal talked about the same thing, that there was a, it was incredibly disconcerting to know the Japanese were watching them from, from Mount Austin. Um, so let's go and check it out. We're going to how drive thi- down the road. Just so quickly say, how things change. I mean, it's a beautiful spot now. It's a great place to go to a, uh, for a walk. And in fact, I can see it from uh, the windows at the back of my house. Uh, the, the beauty, the, you mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> it is still there, a good spot to visit. We we, we it, don't yeah. actually visit very often on the tours, but we point it out, don't we, as we, yeah, we, do. as we cruise yeah. past it. It's a, such yeah. a, again, these, these iconic sites that... Um, that have changed so much yeah. over time, but the ghosts still haunt them. And Mount Austin Indeed. is the same. When we go there, Mount Austin is yeah. exactly the same. So we're driving out of Honiara. We're heading east along the road. We're about to turn right into the hills. Uh, just before we do, we're passing, again, one of these connections with World War II history. It's the Honiara Hospital, the main hospital in Honiara, which is on the left of the road. Um, but it is built on the site and actually still utilises some of the buildings from an American hospital that was established in July 1943. Uh, because Guadalcanal was such an important base in the Pacific after the campaign. Uh, and it was the ninth American General Hospital uh, was built on that site. And so even today, I love the, I love the local people in, in the Solomon Islands. They're the best and they've got a great sense of humour. Uh, and they still refer to that hospital as number nine. They never call it the hospital. They say, oh, I, you know, I injured my foot. I better go and see the doctors at number nine. So they still refer to it as number nine. So again, just another great link with World War II history. But as we turn the corner and start to climb uphill, there's a large civilian cemetery on the side of the road. And so if the hospital is number nine, what do the locals call the cemetery? <laughs> number 10. <laughs> so as, as they say in Honiara, if things don't go well in number nine, you end up in number 10. <laughs> and I love that. There's There's numerous examples of those little... Little um, little insights into the local humour. It is really a great place to visit. So we're going to drive past number ten. We're going to head up uh, up the road, and as we head up, um, we come to a spot. It's it's difficult to find. There's nothing that marks it today, but it's just basically a low ridge. But this marks the spot where a, one of the most courageous actions of the entire campaign occurred. This is where Platoon Sergeant Mitch Page, who was in the Marines, the Seventh Marines, uh, earned himself the Medal of Honor on the 25th of October. 1942, and he was in charge of a, a machine gun section. And as we recall, Pete, they were armed with the World War One gear. So this was a water-cooled, yep. you know, the American version of a Vickers. I should I, every time I mention this, I forget to look up what the model number was, but the M41A, whatever it was, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, water-cooled. <laughs> yeah, the war, but effectively, it was the same. It was the, exactly the same mechanism as the Germans and the British were using in the First World War. Um, but it was the Browning-built 30-cal version of the Vickers machine gun, water-cooled, big, heavy thing to lug around and had been used previously in 1918 in the Meuse-Argonne and the famous battles the Americans fought on the Western Front. So the Marines were equipped with these. So Mitch Page was using one of these machine guns, he had a couple, in fact, and was leading a machine gun section, and the Japanese charged the lines trying to break through 
and he broke up the the enemy attack. And again, just over several hours, a little bit like John Bazalone, the more famous Medal of Honor uh, during the Guadalcanal campaign. Bazalone was actually also in the Seventh um, Marines and did exactly the same thing with the same type of machine gun, but just broke up a Japanese attack and, and saved the day. Um, so this is the spot where Mitch Page uh, earned the Medal of Honor, and I'll just read an extract from his citation. When the enemy broke through the line directly in front of his position, Platoon, Platoon Sergeant Page, commanding a machine gun section with fearless determination, continued to direct the fire of his gunners until all his men were either killed or wounded. Alone against the deadly hail of Japanese shells, he manned his gun, and when it was destroyed, took over another, moving from gun to gun, never ceasing his withering fire against the advancing hordes until reinforcements finally arrived. I'm going to say it as an aside, I love the way they write these Medal of Honor citations. Uh, Then forming a new line, he dauntlessly and aggressively led a bayonet charge, driving the enemy back and preventing a breakthrough in our lines. His great personal valour and unyielding devotion to duty were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. Wow. Yeah, fantastic. What, a, what an accomplishment. How well is that written as well? What was that what was that line there? The uh the advancing hordes. <laughs> yeah. The uh, these Victoria Cross citations tend to be a little drier than that, but uh, that's um that's stirring stuff. That that belongs in a newspaper. But um pretty um pretty impressive stuff. At, at one stage he found himself completely isolated and the Japanese had advanced past him. So he had to swing his guns around and fire on them as they advance past him. And the Americans in another part of the line thought the Japanese must have captured a, uh, an American machine gun and was using it against them because they could hear this gun firing loosely in their direction. But that was Mitch Page all on his own doing his good work. Pretty um, pretty heroic stuff, Pete. Yeah, it's, uh, it's I wouldn't say a standard uh, citation for somebody awarded the, uh, either the, uh, in our case, the Victoria Cross or the Medal of Honour for the for the Americans, same, same level of award. But it's, um, I mean, you have to do something rather extraordinary to say the least. And this, this, this being a, uh, yeah, a, I wouldn't say a typical example, but a really good example. Well, yeah, Mitch Page, um, interesting bloke, actually. He was from Pennsylvania. Um, he was in his mid-20s when he earned the Medal of Honor. Um, his parents were actually Serbian. They, they'd emigrated. He was born in America, but he was Serbian by heritage. And his birth name was Mihalo Pejic, which he anglicized to Mitch Page. Um, and interestingly, he was a career serviceman. Uh, again, like John Bazalone, the, 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 the blokes that tended to be the heroes in the early parts of the war um, had done a lot of service. We, we think about America coming into the war quite late, but of course they, they already had a, an army and a Marine Corps uh, long before the Second World War. Um, and he'd actually joined, Mitch Page had joined the Marines in 1936. He'd served in China. He'd served in Cuba. Um, so he was assigned to the 7th Marines at the start of the war. So that's the 7th Marine Regiment, part of the 1st Marine Division, um, and was sent to... So when we refer to the number of Marines, you know, the 7th Marines, the 1st Marines, it's normally the regiment we're referring to, um, all part of the 1st Marine Division. Uh, and the 7th Marines were actually sent to Samoa as part of this garrison force in the Pacific, and actually, I'm going to touch on that now. Pete, we touched on it briefly in the first Guadalcanal podcast, but didn't expand on it. And I was listening to it the other day, and I think we should expand on it more. A really fundamental question that doesn't often seem to get asked is why were there so many American troops scattered in these strange little outposts across the Pacific? Do you know the the backstory of this, Pete? No, I have no idea. And funny enough, when I was looking at some of the places that he'd served, I actually wondered if he was serving as as uh, exchange or, or for experience, because I wasn't sure why he was uh, he was serving or he had served in so many strange places that we wouldn't certainly, from a British perspective, we wouldn't expect uh, our soldiers to be serving. Well, the Americans cop a bit of a bad rap when we say they were late to the war, and you know the Americans weren't dumb; they knew there was a war coming up, and they were. 
getting ready in a certain respect. They they did not want to be caught off guard in spite of what happened at Pearl Harbor. But when we see that people served in China, that was quite common. They did so they the Americans sent um I don't know what you what you'd call them, but exchanges. They sent uh, liaison yep. officers yep. to China because the war, of course, had been fi- been fighting uh, the Japanese had been fighting the Chinese since the 1930s, and so the Americans sent observers over there, liaison officers, to learn and to advise and to see what was going on, to learn as much as they could about the Japanese and to find out what tactics and strategies were working against them. Uh, so, so Mitch Page was one of those. But the reason there were so many American troops spread out is to do with Australia and New Zealand. Um, and it's a, a funny little chapter of the history. But that, uh, so at the start of the war, Australia and New Zealand sent troops to fight in Europe and North Africa. And in 1941 and into 1942, uh, a lot of fighting in North Africa for those Australian and New Zealand divisions. And they did very, very well and were a very important part of the British forces. Um, when Pearl Harbor occurred, when the Japanese were rampaging through Asia, Australia and New Zealand obviously turned their attention closer to home. And we wanted to bring our troops home from North Africa to protect our countries. And the British, Winston Churchill in particular, was adamant that this didn't occur, that they were too vital to the upcoming um, upcoming combat that was being planned in North Africa. Uh, and so there's a bit of stalemate. Australia and New Zealand were saying, well, we need our troops to protect Australia and we protect our home countries. And Churchill was saying, you can't remove them from North Africa. So the solution came in the form of the Americans. Mm. The Americans were now in the war. And so the British effectively did a deal with the Americans and said, will you release some troops from America and send them to guard Australia and New Zealand to alleviate the fears of Australia and New Zealand? And the Americans agreed. And that is why, for example, the 1st Marine Division was in Wellington when the Guadalcanal campaign launched. They were there as a garrison troop to to stabilise that area and to prevent New Zealand from sending troops out from North Africa. So really fascinating, the little uh, the interwoven politics that uh, that dictated much of the second world war i think it's interesting uh, certainly when i first started taking an awful lot of australians around the battlefields and uh, i grew up with really with stories from my parents about uh, about churchill and how he held the country together and you now my parents really saw churchill as the as a savior of britain during the during the second world war um, and in fact i think i've mentioned this on a previous podcast i was brought in from playing in the garden to watch his uh, his funeral um but first meeting uh, australians and obviously being aware from the perspective of uh, of uh, him and the Gallipoli campaign, I, I know he's you know he's uh, sometimes blamed for the, for the Gallipoli campaign. I really hadn't got to grips with uh, uh, also the, the feel that he also let Australia and New Zealand down by not returning part of uh, of the Australian forces uh, to defend uh, Australia and New Zealand uh, during the Second World War and keep holding them back for for the campaign in North Africa. Um, so yeah, it came as a bit of a surprise really as uh, you know this uh, I wouldn't say hatred but certainly uh, on top of his uh, his experience the experiences of Gallipoli and then the experiences of holding back the these these troops that could have defended Australia yeah it's uh, he's not the hero for a lot of Australians that that uh, perhaps I was brought up uh, uh, believing him to be yeah it's a very different attitude uh, from Australians and New Zealanders to Churchill as yeah. a, there is in Britain still a respect but the, you're right there were a couple of sticking mm-hmm. points there and um, it, it was a I mean this we're going well off on a tangent now but it was a fundamental change <laughs> in Australia and New Zealand yeah exactly in Australia and New Zealand foreign policy it was a fundamental change that that moment when um, when the British would not release troops and, and and basically effectively were saying we're not going to support you in the in trying to hold the Japanese back, we then turned to America, um, which made a lot more sense, to be honest, and that's how we remain today. Anyway, 
Interesting tangent, but one worth it mentioning. Is. But it's, it's, I'm always surprised it just gets overlooked when they just say, oh, the, the first Marine division was in New Zealand, and so they sailed for Guadalcanal. Yeah. And, you'll, and no one ever seems to ask the question, well, why the hell were they in New Zealand and not in America? Mm. Um, interesting. So there we are. So Mitch, sorry, back to Mitch Page. Yep. It's going to be a long podcast if we keep going on these diversions, but it's interesting history. Uh, so, yeah, so Mitch Page was with the 7th Marines in Samoa, part of that same reason. They were garrisoning the the Pacific, just trying to shore it up against the Japanese. Um so he served um, throughout the Guadalcanal campaign until the Marines were evacuated. Then he went to Melbourne. And I don't know if you saw the miniseries in 2010, Pete, The Pacific, which I really enjoyed, was one of the things that really got me interested in the Pacific War in more depth. Um, but there was a whole uh, episode of that dedicated to the Marines resting in resting and recuperating in Melbourne. And Mitch Page was right in the, caught up in right in the heart of that action yeah. um, after mm-hmm. that. Did you see that miniseries? Yeah, I've got I've got a box set. Uh, my son bought it for me for a Christmas present at the at the time, so I've got a box set of it somewhere. Fantastic. Well, you can uh, refresh your. Uh, it was actually the the Guadalcanal episodes in particular were very well done, and the Cape Gloucester one. And Mitch Page fought at Cape Gloucester as well. So if you watch that series, Mitch Page's service is effectively. Um, uh, you know, dictated in that uh, in that documentary. Interestingly, um, the, the the funny thing about the Americans, especially the Marines, is they only ever did um, a couple of campaigns. They weren't they, this service wasn't ever dictated by length. Usually, it was if they did two or three campaigns, they were sent home, um, which was odd considering the huge sh- sh- manpower shortages in the Pacific that they would let people go home. I, yeah. You would have thought they'd stay and fight through the whole war, but no. Once you'd done two or three actions, you were considered to have done your bit and sent back. And that's what happened with Mitch Page, especially being a Medal of Honor winner. He was given, yeah, you know, he was treated as a bit of a hero, sent back to the US where he was a training officer till the end of the war. He rejoined the service in the Korean War, again, training young troops and having fought in Guadalcanal and Cape Gloucester, the, the older guard had essential things to, to teach the new, the new men in the, the Korean War. Um, and interestingly, I, sh- I should do a shout out here to a, a dear friend of mine who's sadly no longer with us, John Innes, who was the absolute pioneer of walking the battlefields of Guadalcanal and he lived in Guadalcanal for a couple of decades and was instrumental in uh, organising a lot of these commemorative events and he was telling me that one day he, a group of American veterans in the 1990s had come to return to the battlefields and he was just chatting to them and he got chatting to this one guy and said, oh, you, you, you were on Guadalcanal when you were here and the, the old bloke was telling him the stories of when he was here and just, oh yeah, I, yeah it was a tough time and and John looked down and the man was wearing a name badge and a name badge and it said Mitch Page. <laughs> So a very humble guy had not mentioned that he'd earned himself a Medal of Honor, and <laughs> so John uh, John became good friends with him as he did with many veterans. And um, Mitch Page died in two thousand and three, aged eighty five. He was the last surviving Medal of Honor winner from the Guadalcanal campaign. So interesting bloke, a story yeah. um, which will hopefully be told in more detail one day because it's worthy of being told. Um, so we're going to continue along the road, and our next stop is uh, one of the most important sites on Guadalcanal. It's the Japanese Memorial. Uh, so there's a large American memorial on a, on a hill uh, further f- on the other side of the battlefield. This is the Japanese memorial. A little bit controversial. Um, mate, I'll, I'll ask you at the outset, Pete, how do we uh, feel about the, our former enemies building, building memorials and monuments on battlefields? Oh, I have no problem with it at all. Uh, and I have to say, I wish, uh, certainly on, on the Western Front, that some of the memorials that the Germans did build at the time were still here. I think it gives you a good, a better, or a better juxtaposition, uh, to be able to see your enemy's commemorations, uh, and your commemorations. So I often feel as we, uh, as we guide on the Western Front that, uh, that, uh, uh, that, that it would be nice if there were more memorials commemorating German units uh, that we I understand, I understand totally why they're not here 
But I think that juxtaposition is missing. And it's the same with the cemeteries because the German cemeteries here on the Western Front were centralised, very few of them. Um, and uh, uh, so, again, it's a shame we can't say, well, there's the guys that fought in this battle, uh, the, uh, uh, the guys from, the, uh, from Britain or the Empire, and there are the Germans in their cemetery. And it, uh, you, you can occasionally, when they're intermingled and they're buried within a Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery. But so I like, I, I actually like to see memorials uh, to, to, to your enemies. So I, I don't have an issue with it, but I'm not the person that, that, that is living and lived through it on, the, uh, on that land. And certainly, I think I'd feel if I was French, certainly for the Western Front, if I was French and Belgian, I may not. Uh, in fact, I almost certainly would not agree. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I quite like it from the point of view of visiting these sites to be able to see your enemies' memorials. Well, there's an interesting thing that goes on in the Pacific, which flies under the radar a little bit, but Japan as much as they sort of in many ways have refused to accept responsibility for what went on in the Second World War, there is also a feeling of um, reparation in some respects that Japan has spent an awful lot of money building up bridges and roads and donating cars. And a lot of the infrastructure you see in the Solomon Islands today is funded by Japan. And I believe, I don't have any evidence of this, but I believe that's part of the you know reconciliation after the Second World War. So the Japanese as a proud people would never openly come out and say, sorry, we invaded your land and murdered lots of your people. But they, they are doing lots of things to support modern, the modern Solomon Islands. And so I, I, like, I really like the Japanese memorial. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting memorial. It's a big white tower made out of concrete. I mean, have a look on the, on, the, on the web to see what it looks like. But, I mean, the Japanese certainly are deserving of a memorial on Guadalcanal. It's, it's not a memorial to war and victory. It's a memorial to lost men. And the Japanese lost more than 30,000 men in the Guadalcanal campaign. Um, on the land, at sea, and in the air over the islands. So it is a it is important that there's a spot where they can be remembered because Japanese visitors do come back to Guadalcanal as well. Less so these days, but over the decades we have had Japanese visitors. So this is on Hill 35. We mentioned in the last podcast the hills were just numbered numerically east to west. This is Hill 35. Um, quite, a, quite an impressive memorial, a large tower um, surrounded by a garden, um, red and white frangipani trees, which reflect the colours of the Japanese flags, the Japanese flag. Uh, and there's a beautiful bronze statue of a Japanese fisherman, really life-size, larger than life-size, beautiful sculpture of a Japanese fisherman with a net over his shoulder. And it was sculpted by a Japanese man by the name of, forgive my pronunciation, but Seichi Takahashi. And he was a Japanese artist before the war. He joined the army and he was killed on Guadalcanal. So his hometown donated us one of his sculptures in 1984 when this memorial was built. So today it's a really... Um, it's a really lovely spot. It's a really reflective spot. And this is where um, Japanese groups often come back to Guadalcanal to find the remains of Japanese soldiers that are still out in the jungle. Um, and the vast majority of Japanese men killed on the land were not formally buried and their bodies have not been recovered. So um, quite often local people will find Japanese remains. Um, sometimes Japanese groups come out and actually search for remains. And when they find them, they hold a, a Shinto ceremony here and uh, and cremate the the remains. I've never I've never been fortunate to enough to be at Guadalcanal at the time one of these services is going on, but apparently it's very very moving. Um, and so, uh, Pete, I think it's nice. I think it's I think there is a, f- a feeling of reconciliation now. There's mm. a feeling that was a long time ago, and I, I I think for the people of the Solomon Islands and and the the handful of veterans that are still alive, I think they do have the ability to look back with that lens of. Well, we were all young, young blokes just doing our best for our country, and it, it's, I, I think it's always important when people reach that um, that level of, of, of understanding. 
I think it's interesting. Immediately looking when I uh, saw the photographs of the memorial and started reading uh, about it, it reminded me of the ossuary at Verdun. Uh, two reasons, because there the remains of both French and German soldiers are held together within the uh, the ossuary. That they, they don't make any distinction if they find human remains on the battlefield there, they're put together. But it was also the kind of the imagery, really, uh, the, the 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 spire and uh, and the place and the gardens all around it. it it just felt somewhat similar. Um, and, uh, yes, of all the places when I've been uh, doing the research and looking at your notes on this battlefield, it's the one that I really would like to actually to visit, to go and, to go and see how it actually feels to be there. It's a lovely spot. It's very reflective. It's very, as you would imagine, as a Japanese memorial, it's very reflective. It's not, it's not typically Japanese. It's made out of white painted concrete, but it's, it's a very reflective place. But it, it's, it's had a, a checkered history. So in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, we all remember that there were the, the ethnic tensions in the Solomon Islands where there was a lot of fighting and sadly a lot of people died and it was very unstable. Um, the, Ameri- the Australian forces that went in as part of Ramsey, the uh, regional assistance mission, uh, actually landed on Red Beach, the same beach that, um, that the Americans had landed on in 1942. Mm. So when they arrived in the early 2000s, they actually landed on the same beach. Um, uh, but this memorial, the Japanese memorial on Hill 35, fell into disrepair during the during the tensions. Um, and the first time I visited it in 2010, even though that was long after the, the the tensions had subsided, the place was an absolute mess. It was the the memorial was falling down. It was the gardens were overgrown, um, and the the sculpture, the bronze sculpture, was not there. Mm. Um, and the the suggestion was it had been destroyed during the tensions. And it is true that that during the tensions um, there was a lot of uh, looting of, of metal objects which could be melted down for scrap and, and this was one that came under the that was targeted and the sculpture was actually dragged halfway down the hill by pe- persons unknown in the hope of melting it down for scrap um, but it was simply too big and too heavy they couldn't get it down the hill and so um, someone I, I, I don't know the full story but someone recovered it and hid it away until the tensions were over. And then no one even knew it was still there. But then when they renovated, only a few years ago, they renovated the Japanese memorial beautifully. They did a wonderful job, replanted the gardens. They built a large wall around it and they put a a permanent guard on the front so people couldn't come in and vandalise it. They repainted it and it looks beautiful now. Um, The sculpture reappeared and was rededicated. Uh, So it had been hidden away somewhere. And it it is an absolute focal point because this is a peace memorial. The Japanese call this memorial to peace. And the sculpture is a, a focal, a, a central focal point of that of that feeling. I think it's amazing that it's one of uh, a sculpture of a, of a soldier that actually died here. So uh, it's it's really a suitable a suitable memorial and a suitable location. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We were talking about reconciliation. There's a wonderful story about that. So in 1992, the 50th anniversary of the campaign, a lot of American veterans came and a lot of Japanese veterans came. And the Americans had intended to hold their service at the American Memorial and the Japanese intended to hold their service at the Japanese Memorial. And in previous years when they'd done this, there was usually a day apart so that they didn't interfere with each other because they certainly were not combined. But on this date, the 7th of August, 1942, or 1992, the 50th anniversary. In the lead up to that, the Japanese approached the Americans and said, we would love you to attend our service. As former enemies, we'd love you to come together and join us in our service. The American response was, there's no way we're having a combined service with those Jap bastards, was the initial response from the Americans. But then they got together and they had a chat about it and they decided it was time. And so, wonderfully, on the 7th of August, 1992, the first combined service was held at the both the American Memorial and the Japanese Memorial with, with members of the opposite sides attending, which was wonderful. I wasn't there. I was too young to be there, but um, people just said it was just a wonderful moment. And from then on, while ever, whenever veterans would come back, they would then have combined services at both the US and the Japanese uh, Memorials. Sadly, service people don't. There's, there's only a handful left and they're way too old, so that, that doesn't happen. But the, the Japanese people representatives still attend the American service and American representatives still attend the Japanese service on the anniversary every year. But there was a wonderful little footnote, which I just love to that story in 1992. After the commemorative services, the Japanese said, the Japanese are baseball mad, and they said, we're going to play a game of baseball. We've arranged to set up a baseball field at, on the sports field at Hotiara, and we would be greatly honoured if you would join us in a game of baseball. And the Americans said, oh, that sounds fun. You know, all these men are in their 80s and 90s. <laughs> that sounds... That sounds fun. Let's play a game of let's play a game of baseball. And so the Americans turned up just in their casual gear. The Japanese turned up in the very Japanese way in full baseball uniforms. The whole the whole gear. And because they had not expected that the Americans would be participating, half of them were dressed as Japanese and half of them were dressed as Americans in these uniforms. <laughs> and so they played this game of baseball. I mean, they obviously I said eighties and nineties. They would have been in, probably in their seventies back then in the nineties. But I would have loved to have seen them playing yeah. this baseball game. And I think, Pete, you could say the second battle of Guadalcanal was fought on the 50th anniversary. But this time, the Japanese were victorious yeah. in, the, uh, in the baseball match. So I just, I love that story. I think that's brilliant. And it was the turning point of reconciliation. And from then on, uh, they came together every year um, for several years, probably for the next decade, they came together to commemorate mm. um, together, which is a really wonderful turning point. 
I think it is wonderful because I'm sure you've met them and I've certainly met them, people that do not feel like that. Uh, over the years, I've met many people uh, who have never bought a Japanese car, will never forgive. And so it, it's uh, it's nice, and this is some time ago now, but it's nice that that reconciliation started in the you know, in the 90s and continues oh, my today. Great. Yeah. My grandfather, Tom, actually my step-grandfather, but I always thought of him as my grandfather. He had served with the New Zealand forces on Guadalcanal in 1943, um, and he, for the rest of his life, was never he never bought mm. a Japanese car. He never yeah. <laughs> he hated yeah. them, and that was a fairly common um, yeah. common experience. Yeah, Not universal, good to see, but you can understand why. I mean, we, yeah. we can't put yeah. ourselves in their shoes, so we can understand yeah. why. Um, leaving the Japanese memorial, we're cont- continuing up the hill now. We're on a bit of a rough track. Most of the roads around... Are a bit of an adventurous, but this one this one has a very strong war connection. It's called Wright Road, and this was built during the war, and it was named after Lieutenant Colonel William Wright, uh, who was an army officer who was leading his men up here. Uh, and on December 19, 1942, he was shot and killed uh, from fire from Mount Austin as as we as as he approached Mount Austin, one of the early attacks to try and secure this position. Uh, he was killed, and so the road was named after him. Um, there's a story that I read looking him up that his brother actually braved heavy fire to recover his body. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it's a nice story. Um, so this road was constructed by the Americans in December 1942 to give them more access to Mount Austin and that area, that Japanese holdout known as the Gifu. Um, and uh, again, just American industry coming into the war. They needed to bring up yeah. men and supplies, but most importantly, they needed to bring up tanks because the Gifu was about five or six hundred Japanese men who were just in this basically completely surrounded by the Americans but just refusing to surrender and, and holding out. And the Americans even brought up loudspeakers and got Japanese interpreters to shout out to them and tell them you're surrounded, you should surrender, but the Japanese obviously refused. So eventually the Americans in January 1943 as part of this operation we're describing now sent in three uh, Stuart tanks. They were the little the little tanks, not the big Shermans we would see mm. in Normandy, the little Stuart tanks which were not much use in Europe, but in the Pacific, where there were no anti-tank defences, they were pretty deadly. Um, so the three tanks were sent up in January 1943. Two of them broke down, but one of them succeeded in getting all the way up to the Gifu and smashed through the Japanese lines um, and caused havoc just firing its machine guns at the Japanese defenders and you know, causing absolute horror amongst the Japanese. And then turned around and came back and did the same thing again through another part of the line. Um, and so that really broke the back of the Japanese defences. And soon after that, the Gifu was, was captured by the Americans. So this is the road that the tanks came up. Mm. And again, you're never far away from the history as you uh, as you drive around Honiara, Pete. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's very interesting. And I've always looked at those little uh, little light tanks that the Americans used. And you often think when you're thinking of, uh, of Europe, certainly, which, of course, normally I am, what good would they be? But ideal for this kind of jungle work and light roads. Uh, I mean, uh, and especially if you're facing an, uh, an enemy that hasn't got any heavy anti-tank weaponry, which the Japanese did not have. So, uh, yeah, uh, still a horror to the infantrymen to have to face armoured vehicles. Well, they've become basically just mobile machine gun bunkers, don't they? Yeah, yes. Uh, they're just they're, they're bristling with machine guns and they can just... Yeah. The, the enemy can't do anything to stop them as they approach because there's there's no weapons they've got to use them and they just trundle up and blast away. They were used effectively as well at places like um, Alligator Creek in the famous action there at uh, the Tanaru, the Battle of the Tanaru earlier in the campaign. Um, Tanam, Tanambogo and Gavoto, the two islands uh, near Tulagi, they were used effectively as well. Actually, throughout the throughout the Pacific, the Stuart Tank. There's that famous photo of Boona and Gona showing the Australian troops advancing with the Stuart Tank supporting them against the Japanese in New Guinea. So the Stuart was um, very useful in yeah. uh, 
in, in these assaults, and it proved so again here in Guadalcanal. So we're now on a road uh, constructed to, so those tanks can come up. We're going to keep driving up the road a little bit further, and we're going to eventually reach the summit of Mount Austin. It's quite a thick jungle, so we can't see out, but we're, going to, we're up on the summit, and we're going to park... So, Pete, if you just pull over to the road to the left here, we'll uh, we'll park the car. We're going to get out and yeah. do a little put bit of handbrake on. Gonna... I'll put the handbrake on. We're okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's a slope. So, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, so, we're going to uh, we're going to walk along a, a track here, and there's a wonderful tale here, which is well worth doing. So, we're going to walk along a track, Pete. And I haven't told you this story. I put in the notes that I'm going to tell a story, but I didn't tell you what the story was, and it's a wonderful tale. So, Pete's hearing this the same time as you are, dear listeners. So. We walk along this track. We just come to a tree. It's a big old tree looming over the track. Nothing particularly special about it, but it's there's a wonderful story associated with it. So I'm going to go back a little bit. At the start of the Second World War, the Americans had been doing preparations, obviously suspecting a war was not far away, and they were greatly inspired by the commandos, the British commandos, and what the British had been doing with special forces. And the Americans decided, I think it was even, um, I think it was even Roosevelt decreed that we need our own force. Uh, the same as that. So wanting, obviously, to be slightly different from the British, they didn't call them commandos. They attached them to the Marine Corps, but called them Marine Raiders. And I tell you what, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know about Marine Raiders, go and look them up. The toughest badasses you would ever find in the Pacific War. I, I know one of them, um, and he's a lovely bloke. He's still alive. He's a really great guy. I took him back to a battlefield and lovely bloke, but they are tough. And some of the actions that the Marine Raiders fought in were just incredible. And this this tale is no less incredible. So the, the, the famous Marine Raider Battalion, they, the, the Americans initially formed two battalions of Marine Raiders, and the first battalion is probably the more famous. That was commanded by um, Colonel Edson, and they famously landed on Tulagi, the first American landing of the Second World War, and then fought in September at what is now known as Edson's Ridge, the most famous battle of the Guadalcanal campaign, Edson's Bloody Ridge. That was the first battalion of Marine Raiders, but there was actually a second battalion as well. And I think in many ways its story is even more interesting, but it receives less publicity. So the 2nd Marine Raider Battalion was commanded uh, by um, by Colonel Evans Carlson. Firstly, great name. They all had great names. But Evans Carlson was the commander of the 2nd Marine Raider Battalion. And he was an interesting bloke. He'd been sent to China, as we discussed, in the 1930s as a liaison officer. And he'd observed the way the Chinese were fighting against the Japanese. And he actually brought back a, a few... Uh, a, f- a few things he'd learned in China, he brought back and applied to the to the battalion when he formed the Raider Battalion. Uh, a couple of those things were he um, said to his men, all of his men of any rank, you can approach me whenever you like. So he was the forerunner of the open door policy. Um, he was also very big on giving what he called the big picture, where he would explain to all of, all the ranks what they were trying to do, so that everyone everyone um, knew what they were trying to do. But most importantly, and with the same sentiment, he adopted a term he'd heard in China, and it became the motto of the battalion and the it was a loose chinese expression which simply meant working together and pete do you have any idea that term is still with us in english do you have any idea what that term might be i do not nope no no idea gung-ho the term is gung-ho and so the meaning has changed somewhat in in recent years but originally that was applied to the second marine raider battalion to mean working together so he was very big on this cohesive cohesiveness throughout his force and i spoke to a private who had served with uh with Carlson in the, the Marine Raider Battalion, he said it was absolutely the case that there was just a unity throughout the entire battalion. There was no division between the ranks and it was just a, a very a very special force to be a part of. 
and the second Marine Raiders are most famous for what uh, for what was known as the Long Patrol, and this the most audacious yeah. action you would ever imagine. So, this began in November 1942. The Marine Raiders were taken by boat way outside the American perimeter, then landed on a beach, and then the they basically pushed inland and spent a month behind enemy lines, just marauding around, disrupting Japanese reinforcement and resupply. They killed nearly 500 Japanese during the 30 days of the patrol and lost 17 men themselves. So just an audacious, brave... Imagine how disruptive that was to the Japanese, Pete, to know that there were best part of a thousand enemy soldiers behind their lines just popping up out of the jungle and causing huge disruptions. I mean, again, Pete, with your experience, what would that have done to the Japanese ability to wage war? Yeah, well, it's something that's obviously, uh, as a commando myself, it's something that we uh, we are trained to do. So it's something that I've often thought about. And actually, I knew nothing about uh, this group of men at all until I started reading some of your notes. And it's really fired me up to learn uh, more about them. So uh, extraordinary group. And to be uh, behind enemy lines for such a long time, that is a considerable uh, length of time to be out of contact with anybody and also to, to live off the off the land, something that I used to instruct. Uh, people how to live off the land as well so so uh, unbelievable and that 488 uh, Japanese dead to the loss of 17 what a ratio that is I mean extraordinary and I just at my instant view was I wonder how many of the of the 17 that, of his own men that died actually died not by enemy action but but by d- uh, disease during that period or accidents in fact as well so uh, mm, yeah absolutely. I'm going to I'm going to do a lot of reading I think I think it was a very interesting and uh, yeah and something I knew nothing about at all I have to say it's a fantastic story and, and not very well told so look up the long patrol of, of Carlson's Raiders it's a fantastic story um they the important thing to say is they were greatly supported. So I don't think the, the battalion was a thousand at full strength. I don't think a thousand men went on the the long mm. patrol, but maybe nine hundred or so did. Um, but they were supported by a couple of hundred uh, Solomon Islander scouts. And we should never forget the role played by the local people of the Solomon Islands during the Second World War. Yeah. They were hugely supportive of the Allied efforts, and, and we know about the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels in New Guinea. But it was the same situation in the Solomons. We would not have been able to win that war without the support of the local people. And this is a a brilliant example. And the Scouts were led by a man who's an absolute hero in the Solomon Islands now, Jacob Vuza. A incredibly tough fighter, just a a wonderful man. And there's a famous photo of him holding. It's horrific, but holding the decapitated head of a Japanese soldier he's just killed. Um, tough man. Um, a very famous man in Solomon Islands, a hero of of that that nation, well deserved. Uh, so he he led the um, he he led the Solomon Islander contingent who assisted, and and obviously as they went around living off the land, local people would come out of the jungle and give them food, and that enabled them to um, to wage this this war against the the Japanese. But there's a fascinating story on the second last day of the long patrol, they were heading back to the perimeter, uh, and as they sort of swept around, they came down the the, the, the slopes of Mount Austin, and they there was a suggestion that there was a Japanese patrol right up on the summit. And so a contingent, a patrol from the from the uh, Raider Division, went, a Raider Battalion, went up on top of Mount Austin. Uh, and when they got up there, uh, they discovered that there were some Japanese foxholes there and lots of Japanese equipment that looked like it had been recently occupied, but there were no Japanese to be seen. So the Americans basically hopped into the Japanese foxholes and set up an ambush, and the Japanese soon returned. They'd been out foraging for food. They soon returned and came under very heavy fire from the Americans, and uh, a lot of the Japanese were killed. Several of the Americans were killed as well, three or four were killed, um, but a very tough close-quarter fight. Um, and so that occurred up on Mount Austin. 
and then the uh, the that, that was the sort of end of the long patrol. But there's a fascinating story. I'm going off. It's a very long winded story, but it's well worth telling. There's a, that one of the young blokes who fought in that patrol was a guy called Bill Fisher. He was a 16 year old Marine Raider, um, and Bill Fisher had fought in that action. And after the action, he was walking around just inspecting the Japanese bodies. And one of the Japanese was playing dead, uh, but wasn't, and lobbed a grenade at Bill. And it went off and lightly wounded Bill in the leg. Um, and the Americans, the Americans then killed the Japanese. And that was it. Bill, Bill was, uh, was evacuated along with the other wounded. That evening, as the, as the Americans and the Solomon Islanders settled down in the Japanese positions, knowing that they'd be returning to the perimeter and, and breaking up and probably not seeing the Solomon Islanders again, Carlson suggested they have a bit of a sing song, and the only song that they all knew that they all knew the words to was "Onward, Christian Soldiers." And so, up on the slopes of Mount Austin, they sang "Onward, Christian Soldiers." So that was the story. The Long Patrol then returned to the perimeter, and that was the end of the story. Fast forward many, many, many decades, and my friend I mentioned, John Innes, who was living in Guadalcanal, went to a reunion of Marine Raiders in America and met the elderly Bill Fisher and heard this story and Bill telling him about being part of the Long Patrol. John said, you have to come back to Guadalcanal and I'll show you around. And Bill was like, nah, thanks, I'm not interested in coming back. And over several years of their friendship, they kept in touch. And John would always say, Bill, you've got to come back. I want to show you Guadalcanal. And eventually, under pressure, Bill said, okay, John, I will come back to Guadalcanal on the condition that you find the spot where I was wounded on that day. And so John had a bit of a mission. So he went out and he looked around and he decided that this spot where we now are standing under this tree, Pete was the spot where this action had occurred. and But the problem was there was long grass. You couldn't see any signs of the war. And very mysteriously, that night, a grass fire broke out. <laughs> <laughs> and the next day, John went back up and with the grass all gone, could see lots of foxholes and lots of gear lying around. And he found a lot of relics from, from fighting. Most importantly, he found a lot of chunks of American grenade, which told him that it must have been pretty close quarter fighting. And that was there was no other fighting that occurred on the slopes of Mount Austin here. So he felt that he had the spot. He rang Bill, said, Bill, I think I've found the spot. Bill, the next year, came out. John took him up to the spot. Bill sort of walked to one spot, walked to another spot, walked around. John said he was sweating a lot by this stage. And eventually Bill turned to him and said, I was wounded right under that tree. So well done. And so Bill came back several times to Guadalcanal. And then a few years later, John received a call from his wife saying Bill had sadly passed away. And she said... "Um, she said, but he, he's, he's, he's in his wishes, he said that he wants to be, he wants his ashes scattered under his tree at Guadalcanal, and we don't quite know what that is. John said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And so uh, some Americans and Australians and his family and Solomon Islanders from the nearby village all assembled and they scattered his ashes under the tree and once again sang onward Christian soldiers for the last time. So this tree is known as Bill Fisher's tree and it's just a wonderful moving story about that action. And the, yeah. where we are now standing is where that action of the Long Patrol occurred. It was a Long Patrol and a long story to get there, but <laughs> no, the, those are the worth telling. No, those are the stories because they they unite us to the to the people that fought there. Um, and I, I just love those kind of stories because you can stand here and uh, and you can actually feel uh, his story uh, right the way from when it took place to the modern times and, and beyond. So I, I just love stories like that. I tell you what, I know we're doing this in a virtual sense. We're not actually standing on the island of Guadalcanal, but when you stand in that spot under the tree, the only bit of shade in the area, and you stand under the tree and you tell that story, there's uh, there's never a dry eye. No. Yeah. I mean, I choke up even telling it now. It's just such a wonderful yeah. story. Um, so that's these are the reasons we visit these battlefields and walk the ground. Yeah. But we must push on. We must farewell Bill Fisher and his tree. We must push on. We're going to uh, walk a little bit further along the track, and all of a sudden, 
the jungle clears and it opens up and we have the most spectacular view from the summit of Mount, o- of Mount Austin over the entire Guadalcanal battlefield, the entire American perimeter. We can see the airfield, Henderson Field, as it was known, and now the International Airport. We can see all of the coastline. We can see that all of the key sites that were features of the, the, the Battle of Guadalcanal, the campaign. We can see Edson's Ridge, everything. It all lays out in front of us. And um, this was why the Japanese built an observation post uh, up here, which we will, which we will talk about. Um, I'm going to do a little uh, side note here. This is not directly related to the Guadalcanal campaign, but still fascinating and worth pointing out when you're up here. You, there were eventually three airfields built uh, in this area of Guadalcanal, of which Henderson Field is the only one that remains today, the International Airport. Uh, but one of them was called uh, Number 2 Fighter Strip, and you can see it from here. It's now the local golf course. They've converted into the golf course. Um, number 2 Fighter Strip was... Um, I spoke to a veteran who flew from there, and he said uh, he said they much preferred it to Henderson Field because you took off and landed over the ocean because it was right on the coast. And he said, when you took off from Henderson Field, every every bastard with a rifle took a shot at you <laughs> as you flew over the Japanese positions. <laughs> uh, but, so he much preferred Fighter 2 Strip because you flew out over calm water rather than uh, angry Japanese. Um, but number two, Fighter Strip is most famous because this is where one of the most famous actions of the Pacific War, the P-38s, the 18 P-38s that, that shot down Admiral Yamamoto in Operation Vengeance in April 1943, took off from this airfield. So for people that don't know, um, uh, Admiral Yamamoto was a Japanese admiral who'd planned Pearl Harbor, so he was enemy number one of the Americans. And the Americans were reading the Japanese mail, effectively. They'd broken their codes and could read what they were doing. And in an extraordinary breach of security, uh, the Japanese sent a message saying that Admiral Yamamoto was going to fly uh, down to Bougainville from his base in Rabaul to do an inspection and morale-boosting tour of the fortifications in Bougainville in 1943. Um, and so the Americans decided to get him. And in the only official example of an American president authorising an assassination of a foreign leader, they decided they were going to shoot down Yamamoto. And so in one of the most daring and successfully carried out raids of the entire Second World War, 18 P-38 Lightnings, the only aircraft that had enough range to get there, flew an extraordinary amount. I think it was six hours or something it took them to get there. It was incredible. And they arrived one minute before Yamamoto's plane arrived as well. And they shot down two um, Betty bombers, which had been converted to passenger planes, uh, shot them both down. Uh, and Yamamoto was in one of them. It crashed on the island of Bougainville. It's still there near in the jungle near Buin. His body's not there, but the uh, plane still is. Um, and just incredible feat. Um, only lost one aircraft. Only one of the, uh, of the planes didn't make it back, the American planes. And just incredible chapter of history. Operation Vengeance, the the, the, the killing of Yamamoto. Uh, they took off from number two fighter strip, which we can now see in front of us. Did you know that story, Pete? Is that <laughs> no, a well-known story? No, I didn't. I'm sitting here thinking, oh dear. No, I did not know that story no, you know at what? all. It's, it's fair enough. It's the delineation between yeah. the European theatre and the Pacific theatre. They, yeah. they were happening together and there were so many amazing things happening in both. Um, mm. But this is uh, one of the key stories of the Pacific War. Huge yep. morale boost to America, of course, because the villain of Pearl Harbor had now been killed by the uh, by the Americans. So extraordinary. Yeah, I can. It's I another can good, feel another good story for you to look up, Pete. Yeah, I can see. I can feel another book buying session coming on. Yeah. <laughs> well, the interesting thing about this, again, it's, it is a tangent, but Operation Vengeance is that they were trying hard not to reveal that they'd broken the codes, which was obviously essential. So that was um, the, trying to demonstrate, trying to explain how. <laughs> 16 P-38s had sprung up right in the spot where Yamamoto was without revealing that they'd broken the codes it was an adventure in itself but um, 
yeah, great story. And when you stand in this spot and see that airfield, that's a, that's a, a fantastic uh, link with that history. Um, the Japanese observation post that was constructed up here um, was um, today. It's just a shallow cave. Um, but the remains are still there. It was dug on the 22nd of September, 1942, and as we said, provided observation out over the whole uh, American sector. Uh, and there was a uh, an officer here, Lieutenant Commander Kenji Mitsui, was set up here with a radio set and an 80-foot ground antenna. Um, and was uh, basically, he was effectively a coast watcher, but for the Japanese. He was reporting ships coming in and out, and particularly aircraft taking off from the airfields and reporting it back to the Japanese. Uh, he was almost discovered in October when a patrol came up and, found interference from their radios and American patrol, so realised that there was something going on. Um, he was supported by a group of men uh, nearby with batteries and spare batteries and radio parts and things like that. Uh, and he, they stayed up, he stayed up there till almost the end of the campaign in December 1942, um, spectating on, uh, on, on, the, uh, on the Americans. Um, and uh, and um, Lieutenant Commander Mitsui uh, survived the war. He got off uh, on a Japanese submarine late in the during the campaign, during the evacuation, survived the war, and he returned back to this spot in 1991 to visit it. But when he came back, he told a, a very interesting story about um, one of the most spectacular things he'd seen was what... Uh, there was a lot of bombardments of the American perimeter from Japanese ships, but the one referred to as the bombardment occurred on the night of the 13th, 14th October, when two Japanese battleships came in and fired hundreds of 14-inch shells on the American positions. And the Americans just called it the bombardment. It was just horrific to try and survive that. And basically, they were targeting the American sector. They were targeting the airfields, trying to knock them out, the airfield. And and it was devastating, this uh, this rain of 14-inch shells. And those are some big old shells. They would make a huge explosion. Certainly are. Um, and he observed, uh, Mitsui observed that from up here and you can only imagine how excited he was as he watched the whole American sector just disappear under flame and smoke. And he reported, after watching it all night, he reported at 5am to his commanders that the airfield was completely destroyed and inoperable. And at 5.40am, the first plane <laughs> took off from the airfield. So the Americans did a brilliant job of getting it back into action. So I can only imagine how his, uh, his delight turned to, to horror when he saw the first plane take off 40 minutes later. Um, but that, that, again, just one of those interesting little stories and a tangible link because his cave where he was, the observation post is still there. The Americans never found him. They knew he was there because they knew that those reports were coming in, but they never found him for the whole war. So another great spot to, uh, to inspect. And another extraordinary story, I, I want that, that I want to know more about. I mean, uh, to, to, to be there for all of that time and to actually you know, walk from almost one end of the island to the other to be taken off by a submarine, extraordinary in its own right. Well, Pete, I promise when you next come to Australia, we'll uh, yeah. if you can tack on an extra four or five days, we will <laughs> head up to Guadalcanal Canal and walk yeah. these genuinely. It's well worth doing. And everyone listening, it's, it's absolutely well worth doing. Uh, we're going to carry on now. We're going to return to our vehicle, walk back down. We're going to turn around, drive back down the hill. We're not going to go any further up onto Mount Austin. Uh, and we're going to take a left. Uh, and there's a star on the side of the road, a big a big star, a memorial in the shape of a star, which is an American memorial. And the star indicates that this was an army action up in this area. And this is the memorial to the taking of the Gifu in January 1943. So this is even later than our last podcast, Pete, when we did Thin Red Line. Uh, this is the last action. And the memorial actually says the final destruction of organised Japanese forces on Guadalcanal. And that's what took place here. And that's what we're going to explore now. So we're going to drive past the Star Memorial and into a little village which is called Barana. The people of Barana are really quite lovely. Um, it's a very basic uh, Pacific village. It's, 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 it's up in the jungle. Um, they've got their, their self-constructed huts. 
it's a, a lovely little place and the people are so friendly. As soon as you come up here, the kids come running out to say hi and just to see these crazy Western tourists that, that come to talk about the war. And also the people of Barana have been right in the thick of the action. The village is actually built on what was the Gifu. Just, there's so many relics from the fighting around. Mm. So they've set up a bit of a mini museum with um, where they display all of these all these relics. And the, the first time I went up there, they've got like parts of aircrafts and machine guns and all sorts of things. But the first time I went there, one of them said, oh, I'll show you something interesting. And he had a little tin and he opened it up and it had Japanese gold teeth in it. <laughs> So it's it's yeah some of it's disquieting but yeah. um, a fascinating collection of things and for a while it was a little bit of a market you could offer them a few dollars and and purchase things but they've um quite sensibly stopped doing that now you can't take the relics out of Solomon Islands anyway yeah. you need an export permit so you can't get them out anyway um so now they don't sell them they just display them as this little museum which is great to see um so it's always good to visit the people of uh, of Barana a lovely welcome you get there we're going to walk through the village and there's a hill behind it we're going to walk up onto that hill. And this is Hill 27, again, another famous landmark. And Pete, when we get to the top of this hill, we're actually looking at Galloping Horse, where we were yeah. in our previous podcast, from mm. the other side. We're looking back uh, towards this. And this was part of the Japanese, as we said in that Guadalcanal episode, part of the Japanese reinforcement resupply route across the hills. And this is Hill 27. And this was captured by the Americans on the 2nd of January, 1943. The army men, they came up a surprise attack. And when they got to the top of Hill 27, they found a Japanese artillery gun crew resting under a tree some distance from their gun. And as the crew saw the Americans and raced to the gun, they were all cut down by American fire. Um, and the Japanese uh, attended to, attempted to counterattack several times to take back Hill 27, but were never successful. So probably 100 or so Japanese were killed over the period of the next few weeks as they tried to, or next week or two, as they tried to retake that hill. One account I read which was really moving was that the Americans were saying one night they heard a scream and a Japanese man came running out of the jungle, charging up at them. Um, and they, he didn't get very far. They shot him. Um, but when they went and inspected him, he was barefoot. So the Japanese were just so undersupplied. Yeah. This poor wretched bugger didn't even have shoes. Um, and the, the the American that described it was quite compassionate and said, you know, just another body added to the ledger of death, just another shoeless body added to the added to the yeah. total. Yeah. So the thing about Hill Twenty Seven today is it's a fascinating site to visit um because there are still it's just littered with there are foxholes all over it i sent you a couple of photos pete that you would have seen showing wartime photos of americans actually in a foxhole and then the same foxhole today so the ground is quite hard up here it's 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 ancient coral and so the americans had a hard time digging the foxholes but once they did um they're still there and there's relics everywhere that it's just it's just incredible and bones as well they quite often they find bones of japanese uh, who were killed in the fighting? It was still up there on Hill Twenty Seven. So, and wonderful views across the Seahorse, all the way to Galloping Horse, along that back area of the army actions late in the campaign. So, a really fantastic spot. Um, listen to our previous podcast to hear all about those uh, those those actions I just described. Pete, isn't it wonderful when you come across a site that just transports you back in time, like Hill Twenty Seven yeah. does? Uh, it is, um, and. Uh... Again, we get that that reality of uh, of war sometimes, and uh, I have to say, I, I this is just last week. I had a, a friend that came to stay, and he said, "Pete, well, you know, I'm, I'm interested in walking a front line." And I was working in the garden. I said, "Well, I'm sorry, today I can't come with you, but if you head out over there and follow along this this, this little ridge and out, out of the village, and uh, go go and have a look." And uh, uh, sadly, uh, or, or not, depending on on, on your viewpoint, he. He actually came across some human remains, and uh, 
called uh, the Gendarmerie and then the Commonwealth War Graves and they took they took them away. Um, only a, a handful of human remains, but it does bring it home to you and, and it does get, give you that connection, as horrific as it may be. Uh, but thankfully, these remains will now be buried in a communal a communal uh, grave uh, with uh, for fragmentary remains taken off the battlefields. So uh, yeah, I think it, I think it's nice that these these remains are are recovered. Uh, but it also you do get that that connection, you know, an immediate connection, a rather horrific connection uh, to the uh, to the uh, the battlefields. Um, and it is interesting. It is uh, horrific in a way, but it's it's interesting that it's still there. And you know, most battlefields around the world, sadly, it's part of a battlefield. As uh, there are human remains on, on those on, on those battlefields, but also you 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 get the other feeling of the munitions and and buckles and and just everything else the the detrius of war effectively and it it is it's um it's it's a funny i don't know how to describe it really almost exciting and uh, an interesting uh, and yet that element of of sadness and, and horror as well it's uh, always slightly confusing when you visit these these places i think because you know we go for a reason we go because we're interested and we went to we, we go to see where amazing acts took place and horrific acts took place but yeah the overall feeling is is one i think of uh, of, of amazement really uh, that 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 we can visit these places well, the finding of human remains, without getting too philosophical, does connect us, you know, on a human level. It, it does expose it does. humanity because we can, we can be a little bit abstract about it, even on a battlefield, even if you're standing in a foxhole or a trench on the Western Front or slopes of Gallipoli, you can still be a little bit abstract about it and say, "Well, I know historic things occurred here, but I can't quite visualize it." But when you then look down and see a thigh mm. bone in the earth yeah. in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> it, it it is it is striking and, and yeah. shocking and and it does it's important though because it makes it real. I, and I think it's, as yeah. you say, it's the reality of a battlefield. It's a reality check, and I think I think sometimes it, it's helpful because it, it, even myself, with the, the knowledge I've gained over the years and walking the landscape, you do sometimes you don't forget, but it just becomes a little abstract. I suppose would be the the term to use, and to suddenly be confronted by human remains, you know, it brings it back. It, it brings you back to almost reality, and you have to think, yes, this is what it's all about. You know, it's it, it can be romantic, it can be interesting, it, uh, but it, but sadly, it's it's about warfare and people dying warfare so yes it is a reality check i think that that sometimes is necessary well the reality that the americans who were on hill 27 in january 1943 witnessed was that stewart tank crashing into Mm. the japanese just below them and the japanese then launching a final suicidal charge about 400 japanese that remained launched a suicidal charge against the american positions and most of them were killed very few of them survived their time in the gifu when the americans then the next day January 23 went through and cleared the area. They found that a lot of the wounded had committed suicide. There were a lot of sick Japanese there who'd committed suicide. And um, the vast majority, very, very few Japanese survived the the final stand on the Gifu. But this was it. This was the final organized resistance on Guadalcanal. Um, After that, it was really a mopping up exercise. The the Japanese were pulling back to the western end of the island uh, to evacuate. Americans were hot on their heels. And... um, that was basically it. Two weeks after the Gifu fell, the Japanese evacuated for the final time, leaving a lot, it should be said, leaving a lot of Japanese behind on the island. But those last scenes of Japanese boats going up and down the beach at, at Kanemimbo Bay uh, and men on loudspeakers calling out, if you're Japanese, get on a boat now. We are leaving. And the last, uh, the, the last moments of the Guadalcanal campaign. Mm. And this was the last battle 
And so it's a, it, it is a really moving spot, Pete. It's a really yeah. uh, it's an important spot. And um, it's where our tour comes to an end. We're going to drive back into Honiara and go for a swim and have a cold beer, probably several cold beers. But just a very special place. And I've really enjoyed doing it in this virtual sense. And it's just making me <laughs> really keen to get back over there and walk the ground again because it's a very special spot. Not a battlefield, obviously, that most people will ever visit. But if you get the chance... Uh, don't miss it. It's a, it's a, it's a great place. Have you have you enjoyed this uh, this stroll, Pete? I have indeed, and it, it has fired up my uh, my need to learn more. So uh, always a, a good excuse to buy some more books. Um, so I, I I certainly will be. I, I want to learn more about several of the things we've talked about. Uh, very interesting. Well, that's why we're here. We want uh, we want you, our dear listeners, to be inspired by this history and to go and read some books and read more about it. Read about the Long Patrol. Read about uh, Bill Fisher. Read about the Japanese observation post, Operation Vengeance to, to hunt down Yamamoto and read about the Gifu and the, 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 the famous and tragic last stand of the Japanese. They're all just wonderful stories. So we want to send you to the history books to learn more about this stuff. Um, and send us your thoughts. What, what do you think of, of, of yeah. these operations? How, how much did you know about Guadalcanal before you started listening to these podcasts? Send us, send us your thoughts about it. What, what are your thoughts about the Japanese memorial uh, now being placed on Guadalcanal? Mm. Send us your thoughts. Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter in all the usual places. We would love to hear from you. If you're enjoying this, consider subscribing through ACAST+. Plus. There's a link in the show notes when you can get, uh, you can listen without those pesky ads getting in the way, uh, but also bonus episodes that Pete and I are recording every week, which are available only to subscribers. So consider, consider checking those out as well. Um, but thank you for joining us on the podcast. And Pete, thank you once again for joining us and for your insights and your compassion on these, uh, these important historic topics. Oh, it's been fascinating, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.